All right, as Pastor Gabby said, my name is Dave. I'm one of the pastors here, and this morning we are continuing our journey. Uh, we're near the end of our journey through the book of James, and James has been encouraging us and challenging us and just hammering away at us with this idea that the gospel is not just something that we know or understand in our minds, but that it's wisdom to live by, that Jesus offers us something that can and should radically change our lives on the ground every day. And last week, if you remember, we dove into the subject of conflict and how what's happening inside of us is often the primary driver of how we approach conflict. And one of the key elements James James exposed was the danger of pride. He talked about how when pride gets its roots into our hearts, all sorts of things come out of our lives. And he follows up that section, the section we looked at last week with some verses about how pride will shape the words we speak, how pride leads to judgment and slander. And we're not going to cover those verses today, but you can read verses 11 and 12 on your own. Today, we are going to continue with James. We're going to pick up his letter in verse in chapter 4, verse 13. And today James is going to continue to talk with us about the damaging impact of pride. Except for this morning he's going to expand the scope. And he's going to say that pride can result in a wrong approach to how we view who is in control of our entire lives. James is going to talk to us about uh, the problem of this approach. He's going to talk to us about the results of this approach. And then finally, he's going to offer us a wonderful alternative through the gospel. So that's kind of our roadmap today. And I do want to say this from the outset. This passage is so applicable to us, how we live and who we are in 21st century America. So I implore you to focus, pay attention, and take these words to heart. James Chapter 4, starting in verse 13, he says, Now listen. He, he starts today with just two words. Now listen. It's an exhortation. It's actually not a friendly one. A better translation might be, Woe unto you! Or, you know, you'd better listen up. Or, look here, church. You who say today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. And we can tell that as we get into this passage, James has some passion, he has some fervor. There's something that's really gnawing at him. So what is the problem? What is James so strongly condemning? Well, on the surface, it might seem like he's kind of going after what we might call strategic planning. Because this is a business plan. What he lays out here is a business plan. There's a proposed location. He says there's a, there's a chosen town. There's a time frame, a time frame of a year. There's a revenue target, which is to become profitable, ambitious target, profitable in a year. And so we ask, is, is James against business? Is he against strategic planning? Is he opposed to the free market economy or to people seeking to make money? Is that what he's 
railing against today? No. Because all throughout the Bible, it's really clear that planning is a good thing. God implores us throughout the scriptures to plan. He says, logic and reason and strategic thinking and money are all gifts that God has given to us. So then, what is James saying? I think the key to this first section is found in verse 16. I'll read it for you again. He says, As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. Underline that word, boast. Do you remember it? We talked about it this past summer in our series in the Psalms. In the Old Testament, there's a word that actually means to put your boast in the Lord. Does anyone remember what that word is? It's the word... Thanks for paying attention to my sermons. I'm feeling really affirmed right now, church. No. It's the word hallelujah, halal Yahweh, to boast in the Lord, to put our confidence and find our peace and our security and hope in the Lord. When we say hallelujah, we're saying, God, I find all that I need for my life in you. Hallelujah. That's what that word is all about. It's about boasting. Tim Keller talks about how in the ancient world, a boast was actually a ritual of warfare. And we see this if you watch movies where, where battle scenes are reenacted. There's an army and they're preparing for battle and they're just about to charge. And then all of a sudden what will happen? A king or a leader or a general will emerge from the pack and he'll be out in front. He's generally on a horse and he'll start to boast and he'll say something like, Men! You're here, and today we will feast inside the walls of that city. And then everyone's like, yeah. You know, that city's going to be ours. He'll say something like, they may outnumber us, they may have superior weaponry, but they cannot match our desire for victory. Charge! And then everyone goes, right? The army cheers and they charge. And Keller says, how do you get a bunch of men to charge into certain death? (laughs) How do you get people excited about that? How do you get people to have confidence to face their foe? And the answer is a boast. You stand in front of them and you boast. You see, your boast is what gives you confidence to face life, to move forward against your challenges. Your boast is what gives you confidence to advance against the adversity of this world. I'll I'll put it into high school and middle middle school terms for you. Um, Some of you will remember this. Some of you, it's a ways back. But if you go onto a high school campus and you walk into um, one of the hallways, the feelings will come back. The intimidation that happens in a school hallway, all the social dynamics at play, they will come, your emotions will come flooding back to you. And to kind of understand boasting in terms of like being a school-aged kid, I would say it looks something like this. The main thing that gives me confidence to walk into and down the halls of my school every day is blank. My boast. The main thing that gives me confidence to walk into and down the halls of my school every day is my popularity, 
my wit, my smarts, acceptance by friends, the fact that I'm a good athlete. You see, whatever you fill in that blank with, that's your boast. There's this this really great verse in the book of Jeremiah, chapter 9, and it says this. Let not the wise boast of their wisdom, or the strong boast of their strength, or the rich boast of their riches, but let the one who boasts boast about this, that they have the understanding to know me, that I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth. You see, Jeremiah is saying this. He's saying all of us, every single one of us, has this tendency to boast about something besides the Lord. For some of you, it's your intellect or abilities. For others, it's your looks. For some, it's popularity or winsomeness. Or maybe it's your wealth or status or position. We boast in our jobs, our families, our marriages, our boyfriends, our girlfriends, our health, our activities. And Jeremiah says, all sorts of things can become your boast. But what James points out in this passage, in our passage for today, is that in our pride, the belief that lies behind our boasts, when we boast in anything but the Lord, the core and central belief that lies underneath is this. I am in control of my life. There's just this core belief and thought process that runs so deep and it runs underneath every single boast that is not in the Lord. I am in control of my life. He's saying, in your arrogance, you look at your life and think, if I plan and work and strategize and do my due diligence, then how things go, how things turn out, is ultimately on me. Now see, friends, the New Testament may have been written 2,000 years ago, but this is the modern Western American way of thinking, and it has infected you, and it has infected me. And James says, the problem is, we have bought into this lie. This lie has embedded itself into our hearts so deeply that most of the time we aren't even aware that it's there. I am in control of my life. And the certain problem, the central problem, perhaps the most shocking problem of this lie, James tells us real plainly in verse 14, is this. Why you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. He says, you think you're in control of your life? You don't even know what's going to happen tomorrow. He says, you can't predict the future. He says, even with all your plans and preparedness and strategizing and effort, there are so many factors at play in this world that it is impossible for you to know with any degree of certainty exactly what's going to happen. Impossible. You can't do it. You think you're in control of your life? You don't know what's going to happen in an hour, let alone tomorrow or next week or next month or next year or five years down the road. You do not even know what will happen tomorrow. You see, even social scientists in our day will tell you that certainly, certainly your own abilities and planning and strategy and work ethic will impact your success. Certainly that's one of many factors. But there are so many other factors at play. 
So many other factors that determine, will you be successful at this or that? Will your life have significance or impact that it is impossible for you to calculate them? Things like your upbringing, your culture, where you live, when you live, the people you meet and know, opportunities that arise, what is happening in the marketplace around you. You see, what our culture, what America wants to tell you is this. You can be whatever you want. Your destiny is up to you. You have full control of your life. And friends, the Bible says that's just foolish. And even social science says that's just simply factually crazy to think about. You look, we look at somebody like Steve Jobs. Just take, for example, Steve. And you, Here's what our world would tend to think about him. Steve was just so smart, so creative, so dynamic and driven that it wouldn't have mattered when and where he was born. He would have done something amazing no matter what. Steve was in control of his life. He was in control of his destiny. Nothing could have thwarted him. That's what we're trying to train to think and believe. But is that true? Think critically about that for just a moment. What if Steve had been born in a poor African country 200 years ago, in a rural area where the primary value was physical labor? Or what if he was born during the Great Depression or during one of the world wars and he'd been drafted into the military? You see, the point made by James and social science is this. There are so many factors at work determining our futures that to think that we are in control of what happens is foolish. And friends, furthermore, if you are prideful enough to think that ultimately I am in control of my life, it will only produce two things in you. If you think you're in control of what happens in the future, that will either lead to first arrogance. Arrogance. We see this sometimes in athletes who make promises about victory. You'll notice this, you know. We may have lost game four, but I'm here to tell you, I guarantee victory in game five. I promise we're winning tomorrow night. And that statement instantly goes up onto the lockers of all the opposing team, right? This is a person who's arrogant, who's so overconfident, who believes they have the power to determine what the future will hold. They've forgotten about all the other factors. You'll see this in boxers a lot, you know. Mike Tyson's the greatest fighter in the world. Mike Tyson's going to knock him out. Mike Tyson's going to win in the third round. And by the way, just as a side note, most of the athletes who do this tend to talk about themselves in the third person. And just for free, just as sort of like a bit of pastoral advice, not from the Bible, just for me, for the young people of our world, please do not ever talk about yourself in the third person. There's only one person in the history of the world that was big enough and great enough and amazing enough to talk about himself in the third person, and his name was Jesus. Okay, amen, we've settled that. So pride, it leads to arrogance, the sense that I can control the future or when the future goes my way, that I, that I did it on my own. But it also leads to insecurity. Think about this for a minute. We're sold this idea that we are in charge of our own destinies, that it's all up to us, that we can do anything we set our minds to. And that feels so empowering initially. But when you stop and think about it, when that reality begins to settle in on you, it feels this way. If the future is all up to me, 
If the future of my business, my family, my education, my marriage, my health, my investments hinges on my plans and strategy and effort and performance, then the question that easily arises is, what if? What if I fail? What if I blow it? What if I didn't get it right or do enough work or commit myself fully enough? Friends, I believe this is what's behind so much of the worry, so much of the anxiety that is filling our culture. At the end of the equation, we have been taught to believe it's all on me. You see, at the core of both arrogance and security is this belief, I am in control of my life. And James says in this passage, Do not let pride take you to either place. In fact, he says, let's just get some perspective. Your life is a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. The image here, I think, is clear. It's Oregon on a cool, becoming cold, fall slash winter morning when you walk out to your car and you breathe and you can see your breath. You can see your breath in front of you, but you can only see it for this long. And then it's gone. James says, that's your life in this world. Now, is he saying you don't matter? No, that you're not significant? No, the Bible says you do matter. You're extremely significant. You are created in the image of God. But what James is saying is this, but you're not God, but you're not God. And no one in this room would claim to be, at least I hope not. If I said anyone here, God, I'm guessing no hands are going up today. And yet, here's what James says. You act like it. You act like you think you're God when the place you find peace and security is in thinking that you can control the future of your life. You see, when you say, I am in control of my life, what you're ultimately saying is, I am God. I am God of me. I am God of my life. That's why he says in verse 17, if anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. That's a rant, that statement feels kind of out of place at the end of this paragraph. And yet, when you understand what James is saying, it fits perfectly. And he's saying something that he said throughout his entire letter, and that's this. Take a look at what you do. Because what you do shows what you believe. What you do reveals what you believe. Actions reveal belief, because belief always drives action. If you look at your actions, the way you act, the way you live, the things you do, behind every single one of those things are beliefs. See, action and belief are very tied together. We want to pretend that we can believe things and then live in a completely different way. And yet the Bible says, that doesn't work, that's not possible. James says, that's not real belief. Friends, it's why, it's why gravity never fails. That's why you never doubt gravity. Every single person in this room believes in gravity, and we believe deeply in gravity. We've been taught throughout our lives, right, to trust and believe and rely on gravity. That's why if this stage were were thousands of feet high, I would not come this close to the edge. I would not lean over. I would not even consider jumping off. Why? Because I believe in gravity, and my actions will line up with my beliefs. And James says the same thing here. He says, see, it's easy to say that God is in control. It's easy to sit in church and go, God's in control. He's the boast of my life. He's what gives me confidence and peace as I look to the future. 
But then James says, but do your actions reflect that? Instead of doing good, if, if, if instead of doing good, your actions are filled with selfishness, then you might have to go back and examine, what do I really believe? James says, you might know in your mind that God is in control, but in your heart, perhaps you do not fully believe it. And money becomes this, this wonderful litmus test for determining what it is I actually and truly believe. He says, you can see all of a sudden real clearly what you believe when all of a sudden this, this deep-seated conviction that we have, I'm in control of my own life, gets merged together with financial success. All of a sudden, the picture gets real clear. Because again, money is a wonderful litmus test. Money and what you do with it, the way you act around your money, reveals what you truly believe in your heart. Listen to how James says it. Now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Your wealth has rotted and mobs have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. This is a real feel-good passage. You have hoarded wealth in these last days. James is not pulling any punches here. He says, you take the I am in control. It's up to me and my plans and efforts and abilities approach to life and you combine that with financial success and it will be this very tangible, visible testimony against you. It will reveal real quick what it is you really believe deep in your heart. Now, just as a point of clarification here, James is not saying wealth is bad. Wealth, is wealth good or bad? Wealth is neutral. Wealth is neutral. Wealth is nothing. Wealth is just wealth. Wealth can be used for good. Wealth can be used for evil. But wealth is neither good nor bad. But you combine pride with wealth. You combine wealth with the attitude that you were the primary factor in earning that wealth. And that money will do some major corrosion in your heart and soul. Verse 4. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. They are testifying to what you truly believe. It's getting real clear now. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not opposing you. James says, The result of money meets I'm in control of my life is this. You're stingy with the money you have. You're greedy with your wealth. You are closed fisted with your resources and then you use them only on yourself. Your resources, your money on your home, your family, your cars, your toys, your clothes, your activities, your vacations. James says, if you want to know what you believe about who is in control of your life, follow the money trail. He doesn't say, how do you feel in church? What are you thinking about right now? He says, no, the money will tell the story. Show me the money, baby. That's what James says. Follow the trail and then you'll discover what it is you really believe in your mind and heart and soul. And it just makes sense, actually, when you think about it. This is just logical. If you, deep down in your soul, 
believe that you are in control, that you made it happen, that your financial success is really the result of your efforts, then of course you feel entitled to the spoils. Then self-indulgence and whatever luxury you can afford is simply something you deserve because you earned it. It's yours. It was your effort. You made it happen. Of course. Friends, let me ask you today, and I'm asking myself as well, what story is your money telling? What does your bank account and your checkbook and your wallet say about what you ultimately believe about who's in control of your life? Are your resources telling you about who you believe is in control? Are they saying God's in control? Are they saying I'm in control? Because in this passage, James offers us the wonderfully simple but powerful alternative. He says there is a different way to live. There is a different core belief that can and should drive your life. He says, get rid of I am in control of my life and trade it in for the right story, for the better story, for the gospel story. He's told us the path. Did you see it? Did you notice it already? We zipped right by it. We're going to go back. Chapter 4, verse 15. Instead, James says, instead of embracing a life that says, I am in control, it's all up to me, instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. Instead, you can live your life from a place of saying, God is ultimately in control. And yes, I do my part. And yes, I use my gifts and talents and abilities. Yes, I plan and prepare and strategize and take opportunities. Friends, the Bible is so beautiful because it holds in perfect partnership and tension the fact that our actions and choices and decisions and lives matter. They have consequences. And it holds those truths in tension with the fact that God is in control. You see, the Bible does not say, James is not saying, you are in control, it's up to you. But he's also not saying, God is in control, so it doesn't matter what you do. The Bible says, the decisions and choices you make matter, and God is in control. And what James is telling us today is that the and God is in control is a pretty important part. And it actually can make all the difference. Because friends, if we embrace it, if we believe it, if we feel it and live our lives from it, a few things will change and become true of us. That belief deeply held in our minds and hearts and souls will radically cha- transform the way we live our lives on the ground every single day. A couple things that'll change. First of all, we'll be rescued from arrogance. I mean, again, you can't save yourself from arrogance. These words are chosen intentionally, but you can be rescued from arrogance. We'll be prevented from thinking and saying, you know, I'm going to make this happen. I'm going to do this thing because I'm so great or I'm so smart or I'm so talented. See, when we embrace that God is in control, it empowers us to take this posture of humility. I'm going to do my best. I'm going to do all I can. I'm going to use my resources and wits and smarts and talents. But God's going to have to make it happen because ultimately he's in control, which means when it does happen and it does go well, who's getting the credit? God, you see... 
this statement, God is in control, it actually rescues us from arrogance. Second, it also frees us from insecurity. Because I no longer have to worry and agonize and fret about things and how they'll turn out and if I've done enough or if I've worked hard enough because it's not ultimately on me. I can release it. I can surrender it. I can turn it over. Amy and I were just talking about this yesterday. We were on a walk, talking about our kids. You know, one of the things about being a parent is that you so badly want to steer and direct and help your kids make good choices and grab a hold of wonderful opportunities and you fight this battle of controlling and driving, manipulating them, right? But at some point, at some point, you have to recognize I'm not in control. They're at school all day without me. There's nothing I can do. Actually, I can do everything I can do and then there's a point at which There's nothing I can do. There's a point at which you have to say, either they're in control or, or, God, you're in control. God, you're going to have to do with them what you want. And there's so much peace and freedom in that. And just understanding and embracing that God is in control. I can't be, but he is. You see, God is in control for some of you. That means you can finally sleep through the night again. You can turn your brain off. You can stop worrying and mulling it over. You can just hand it to God and say, You've got it, Lord, and you're smarter and bigger than me. Here's the other thing. It means your money. God is in control. It means your money, your resources... It means you didn't earn them. It means ultimately they're a gift. It means you contributed a little, but most of the work, most of the heavy lifting came from a force and a power outside of you. It means you played a part, you worked hard, you took advantage of some opportunities, you made some smart decisions, but in the end there were so many factors out of your control that put you in this place that you have no choice but to believe that all you have is not a credit to you. It's a credit to God. And the question is, how does that position, how does that posture your heart? I liken it to the difference between having money that you earn from your paycheck and going out to dinner with friends and what it feels like to pay for their meal versus when you're given a gift card from someone else and then you go out with friends. How much easier are you, maybe you're not like me, but this is how it is for me. How much easier is it to pay for your friend's meal when you have a gift card? When the money that you're using didn't actually come from you. It's like you're the most, all of a sudden you're the most generous person. Drinks on me, get the appetizer, you know, like, I got a gift card. Yeah. This is the great, gift cards are the greatest things ever. If you're looking for a gift for me for Christmas, I love gift cards. Sorry, shameless plug. That's a total joke. Um, at any rate, the point is this. God is in control actually postures you to treat all of your resources like they're gift cards. Not like I earned it, I deserve it, it's mine. I gotta hold on to it. You see, this will posture your heart to be generous instead of greedy, open-handed instead of close-fisted. 
charitable, benevolent, fair, good, sacrificial even. One final thought. Why can you trust God to be in control? I mean, why? I say God is in control, embrace this truth, and some of you, that makes you real nervous. For some of you, the only person you trust to be in charge of you is you. And even just the thought of God being in control raises major questions. Can I tell you this morning, friends, here is why God being in control is the ultimate source of peace and life and freedom in this world. Because God is all-loving and He is all-powerful. You see, if, if he was a tyrant, if he was vindictive, it would be a bummer that he's in control. There would be reason to worry. Or if he was weak, if he was powerless, there would be reason to fear. What if a force, what if someone or something comes along that's bigger than him, that's stronger than him, and he's in control, he holds my peace and security and future. But here's the reality, friends. There is none more loving and there is none more powerful. And that's the truth that we gather to declare and remember every single week. In fact, he's so loving, he's so loving that he gave his one and only son on the cross for you. He's so powerful that not even the greatest force in all of the universe, the force of death, could hold him back. Even the grave couldn't hold him in. That's how powerful your God is. He's all-loving and all-powerful. You've never seen or imagined or witnessed love and power together in a combo package like this ever before. You see, the reason God is in control... The reason that's the very best news upon which to live your life is because of this. God offers something that no government, no organization, no family, no person, not even you yourself can offer. The security, confidence, and peace of an all-loving, all-powerful being in control of this universe, this world, your life, and your eternity. It's the most foolproof, proof, safe, secure, peace, hope, and life-filled offer you will ever get. So come to the table this morning. Come to the table and remember that he loves you so much that he gave his son. Come to the table and remember that not even the grave could hold him back. And friends, I'll challenge you with this. Come to the table this morning and bring with you that place where you are tempted to feel like You have control. Bring to the table this morning that place where you're tempted to boast, where you're tempted to find peace and security and hope in this world outside of the living God. You bring that to the table this morning and you trade it in for the ultimate peace, the ultimate hope, the ultimate boast. Security in the all-loving, all-powerful God of the universe who gave His Son for you. So take a few minutes this morning. Remember what this meal is about. Think about where you need to relinquish control. Think about where that statement, I am in control of my life, has got some roots deep into your heart. And bring that to the table. Bring that to the cross today. I'm going to pray and then the tables will be open. Folks will be available to pray for you on the sides. Come, take the bread, take the cup, and then receive the elements when you're ready on your own. 
And Allie and the worship team will lead us in a closing time of worship. Let me pray. God, I don't want to be in control of my own life. There's so many places, Lord, where I cling to that and I take it back and I hand it over and then I grab it again and I find that my boast is so often in me. I long for it to be in you. I long for the unconditional love and the overwhelming grace that only you can give. So, God, would you do that? Would you help us to see? Would you even empower us to surrender? Help us to be a church where when people come, they know that our boast is in you, that we ultimately seek all of our lives and identity in you. So, Lord, as we come to the table today, meet us there. We love you. And more than that, we know that you love us. We pray in Christ's name.